This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Vampire and Me! The Story Beats app. My Senate Counterpart. And Alchemy at the Culture Forum. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for Players, Run for GMs, and Reveal the Book of the Weird for Everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. This, of course, is the fabled segment in which the covert self-promotion of the entire rest of the show gives over to the overt self-promotion of one of us talking about a current, or in this case, uh, upcoming project. And this time, I guess, uh, we're not exactly breaking a scoop here, but this is info that everybody who listens to us probably wants to hear you talk about, Ken, because you, it, it may now be told it that can you now are be the told. lead designer of the new edition of Vampire, which is called... Vampire the Masquerade, 5th edition. And this is published under the auspices of... Of White Wolf Publishing, which is owned by Paradox Entertainment, which is a computer game company based in Sweden. And they had bought White Wolf from CCP, who owned it before, and now they own it. Onyx Path, who have been doing Vampire 20th and... Uh, Mage 20th, and uh, I guess they just announced Changeling 20th, all those things. Uh, or maybe they just started delivering Changeling 20th. I'm not in the Onyx Path loop, uh, thus illustrating the difference between the two uh, groups. But uh, Onyx Path has license for the World of Darkness material, now called Chronicles of Darkness, from White Wolf. And White Wolf will directly be making Vampire 5th edition with me as allegedly lead designer. We will see. But that is the plan. Right. So... Onyx Path will continue to do the other lines. Yes, and they will keep White doing Wolf their will be thing. Doing vampire, right? Although White Wolf will eventually be doing their own sort of versions of the of the future games going forward, but Onyx Path will continue to release things that are in the World of Darkness and that are part of that, and they will probably I'm not su super sure, but I think they will be able to extend their license to do things that are directly compatible with. Vampire 5th, once Vampire 5th is out. So, I guess the, the first question is, uh, what are your design goals for the new edition? Actually, the first question that I've been asked is, Vampire 5th, what's that? Because the numbering system on Vampire is weird. So, just to placate everyone on the internet, 
it goes Vampire the Masquerade, first edition. Vampire the Masquerade, second edition. Vampire. Fast five. Weirdly, Fast Five is the third vampire game. Revised is is uh, uh, three Vampire, three Furious, right? Vampire 20th is Vampire 4th, because 4 goes into 20 evenly, I guess. And Vampire 5th is the one that I'm doing. So, right. for those who are curious, that's the order, unless okay, I have now revised that we've totally second. clarified that. We've clarified that all, to a fairly time. well. Yeah, so the design goals are uh, to make a game of personal and political horror that is, uh, my personal design goal is to make a game that feels like it is a game from 2017, not a game from 1991. And that implies both the uh, mechanics should be maybe a little smoother, maybe a little sleeker, maybe a little faster than the old uh, lovely storyteller system that people got used to and claimed they always loved, just like the couch that was in the house when they rented it. <laughs> and I would like to try, and the setting, of course, is is less plastic than the rules. Uh, I would like to try to do that, at least with the way the setting is presented, such that it is something that feels like a game for 2017, not a game where you're playing someone who has been undead since 1992. Uh, ideally, you'll be playing people who have been undead since who knows how long, but the game will will feel like it is occurring in 2017, and maybe let some of the kids today, who are uh, the same age as, as we all were in 1991 when we discovered Vampire, uh, maybe come into it fresh without having to take on board uh, 30 years of backstory. Uh, much of it very convoluted. Right. Now, a question that uh, everyone other than me uh, wants answered is, when is this coming out? And my answer uh, to, to when I'm asked this question about anything is, well, when it's ready. Yeah. Uh, is there anything more than that? I think White Wolf has said 2018, but I don't think that they've narrowed it down to a quarter just yet. So I don't know if it's first quarter 2018 or summer 2018 or whatever. But my understanding based I'm on... I'm odds in it not being first quarter 2018. Yeah, I, I think that, that that seems unlikely given the other sort of production factors that have to go into it. But I don't think it's crazy talk. This is not official, but I don't think it's crazy talk to hope for summer of 2018. Now, uh, you're presumably at the sort of spitballing stage, and you've got your uh, your big design concept and your goals that you've articulated, but I assume you haven't gotten much typing onto electronic format done yet that you're in, in the early stages. We have a we have a pre-alpha playtest that we ran in World of Darkness Berlin, and much will depend on the response to that. That was sort of a very stripped down engine, but it wanted, we wanted to sort of focus on the core mechanic that was developed, I would say 90% by Kareem Muammar, who was one of the designers. I guess he's technically an editor at White Wolf. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, he's a designer, which is the notion of the hunger if mechanic. He's doing the basic mechanics. He yeah, as well. He's, he came up with the, uh, what I think is going to be the core mechanic going forward. We'll see how the playtesters liked it and we'll see if we think of something. Uh, slightly more elegant, but right now the notion is that rather than track blood, which is just, you know, it's like bullets in your gun. It's not sexy. We would track hunger, which gives you a role-playing answer. It's like, oh, well, if you're so hungry that uh, you just might snap and eat a guy instead of playing it cool and being a, a masquerade vampire, that's going to create problems for you. Dramatic problems, role-playing problems is going to make the story more interesting. And so being me, I'm trying to put a death spiral into things. So the notion being that if you uh, fail a hunger test, you can damp it down with composure, but the less composure you have, the more likely you are to frenzy if you have an external stimulus that makes you frenzy. And vampire fans will know that external stimuli are things like open flames and 
being dissed and um, uh, other vampires being mean to you, things like that, that, that make you frenzy and, uh, or having your, your regnant uh, injured. If you got a blood bond, poor vampires with a blood bond and those frenzy stimuli are outside, but the inside things uh, that, that drive you are driven by your hunger because your, your, uh, your inner uh, monster is, is once that sweet, sweet blood. So it looks like you've already uh, as part of the team, dealt with the one of the early initial questions that you have whenever you're embarking on a new edition, uh, which is legacy. How much do you need it to uh, literally be compatible with uh, previous editions? And it sounds like the answer is not. We would like it to be le- more than not, but less than 100%. And it is right. somewhere on that slighty bar that we are looking right now. Right. And the way that you can be on a continuum there is that you can have a mechanism that is easy enough to pour into... Uh, your old uh, source books. And stuff. Exactly. So that, yeah. Uh, hunger will resemble blood enough that you'll be able to substitute, you know, tear out one module and, and stick in another. Module. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the other question is, is continuity. So uh, white wolf in, in its nineties heyday was famous as the company that really led the charge with the uh, big bunch of uh, serialized source books that, uh, created a narrative unto themselves, even if you never got a chance to play. Um, and so uh, the uh, that has both drawbacks and uh, positives. And so that means that people are, and, and there's been a, a reboot or two along the way, so that there are people who are partisans of one version of the setting or not. So how are you going to handle the continuity issue? Well, the biggest advantage in our favor is that the official... White Wolf continuity ends around 2005, give or take. And now it's 2017. So we have a 12 year gap into which to have anything we want happen or almost anything. I want some things that I am told are not going to happen, but we will see. But one of the big things that has happened is that the governments and secret intelligence agencies of the world have begun to notice that there are vampires and have teamed up to launch what is called the second inquisition to hunt and kill a bunch of vampires. And those, uh, those efforts are non-trivial as players of Knights black agents might imagine with the result that the vampires are more penned into their cities. It's less of a global infrastructure and your story then perforce becomes what are you doing here in the city where you can hide amongst the masses? Because if you try and get on a plane, uh, uh, Oh, the NSA will know. And then, You'll be met at the airport by grinning second inquisition guys who will usher you into a room with windows and you don't want that. Right. Uh, so it is a continuation yes. after a gap, but, but with a, a, but with a couple of fairly major events that I probably can't allude to. Uh, but for example, the Gehenna war is ongoing. So that neatly explains where all of the elders maybe have gone and where the Sabbat is. Uh, so we don't have to deal with that kind of, uh, information just yet. We have the second inquisition, which lets us kill, uh, any inconvenient figures from the backstory that would get in our way of doing what we want. Um, and we have, uh, the ongoing fact that everything you knew about vampire was told by an unreliable narrator. So if we desperately need to go and retcon something, we can say, Oh, that was just a known Samishi liar who said that. And why would you have taken that person seriously just because it was in a game book somewhere? But we're uh, hopefully we can do most of our things with organic changes based on 
the Gehenna War and based on the second Inquisition and not have to go to the retcon well too often because players do value that backstory and have a lot of investment and uh, mastery invested into learning it. It's just that we don't want new players to have to know it because any more than you would need a, a new recruit into the Marine Corps to be a doctoral level expert in the history of Syria. You just need to move in there and those are the bad guys, shoot them. We can basically get that, I think, in a core book and in a couple of setting books. So without giving anything away, possibly even just making up a non-existent example, mm -hmm. can you illustrate the difference between a part of the existing setting that is a constraint that you would like to uh, get rid of or push away into the background for a while, other than just the size of its complexity? There are a number of very, very important non-player characters who, who tend to drive a lot of story or tended in the old uh, continuity to drive a lot of story and do things like say, oh, the Gangrel aren't in the Camarilla anymore all of a sudden. And I think that that, first of all, that sort of gragged a lot of people's campaigns when they were like, but my Gangrel is like the prince of the city. Why would I quit the Camarilla or whatever? And just to try and get their feet off the gas pedal is I think one of the big goals that I personally have. And again, I am often told by holders of the uh, IP that I'm not allowed to do everything I want. So we will see, but, so, but putting those kinds of figures more into the background as people who your story might reach out to, as opposed to people who come in and drive your story for you is, is sort of one of my general goals. And as many of them as I can, you know, send a vampire Gitmo, I will do, but I don't know what my numbers are yet. Now, since you're not allowed to do it, can you give an example of something that you wanted to do but have been uh, kiboshed on? I am absolutely certain I cannot give such an example <laughs> because it would it would lead to fretting on the Internet. And uh, the Swedes um, are a f uh, people who do not value fretting, I think, because they're descended from Vikings. So if you rocked the boat, right. you would tend to fall out. Well, I guarantee you that no one will listen to anything in this segment and possibly fret about it that yes isn't going to happen no there's no there we've never had a fretful response uh, yeah. to ken and robin and i'm sure this won't be the first one right well you have to you have to subscribe at the uh three dollar or more patron level to fret to fret is that it okay yeah. uh, we should put that on the page yeah yeah we'll, we'll still disregard your fretting but right now if i were to pick the thing that would be a my request for something to to happen in in a new version of vampire uh b the thing that i think you would do uh, given your uh, full autonomy and see possibly the thing you're not one of the things you might not be allowed to do it would all be the same thing uh, which is uh, if I had just if I owned the property and said hey Ken here's free reign with vampire I would expect you to come back and say here's the different variable ways that uh, you can choose uh, for uh, vampire rules that there are the rules of being a vampire are not consistent uh, between every single vampire and that you can also modify them uh, for your game and that there are all sorts of uh, uh, different sets of vampires with different vampire rules so that the uh, constraints on what vampires can do which often make a lot of ordinary behavior very difficult to have happen uh, like vampires getting down or vampires eating a meal or all of those other things, which in the old system cost you points, uh, so it was hard to depict. I, I would expect a, a more flexible vampire mythology. Is that happening? Uh, that is the sort of thing that is probably not happening. Um, the notion of the modular vampire, uh, we will be introducing some more elements of traditional vampirism that may or may not take more of a center stage. 
but just because the new hunger mechanic will drive certain vampiric behaviors to the fore, but it's not going to be uh, the sort of flexible build your own vampires that I have in Ice Black Agents, for example. This is still Vampire the Masquerade, not Vampire the role-playing game where you just play vampires. This is vampires within the uh, world of darkness that have the same uh, lovable foibles that you have come to expect from previous versions of Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, will this be a Kickstarter? No. Paradox is a real company with real computer games and real Swedish kroner piled up in a giant vault, uh, and they will spend uh, their money on making it a proper game. And I would say, knowing Mary Lee, who is our art director, and uh, I would say it's going to be a gorgeous game, and it's going to hopefully look uh, as new and as interesting in 2017 as Vampire the Masquerade did in 1991. Hopefully we will be able to sort of um, recapture a sort of graphic look that everyone else in the industry sits back on their haunches and says, oh, that's possible now. Well, now we're screwed, uh, just like in 1991 when the first vampire came out. Right, so it'll be some uh, completely new thing that'll be as distinctive as the Tim Brad's. Exactly, right. And other than... Updated to 2017, is there sort of a aesthetic rule for what the what the tone is? What makes something uh, an element in the world that would be uh, uh, in uh, the 90s uh, vampire? Other than the, the fact that there's the Inquisition is is uh, stronger, uh, is there sort of a tonal element or a theme or a motif that you're introducing this time that uh, th this goes in and this this does and this doesn't go in? I think a lot of it is not so much tonal elements as focus because the focus on hunger, you know, I think brings that beast. Am I less beast? I become into the forefront where, you know, when you're um, doing something that you're risking getting hungrier, you know, that that beast is, is rising in you in a way that you maybe didn't in the old system. Similarly, there's going to be systems that tie you into mortal politics and that tie you into political decisions so that you are, uh, complicit in political decisions made by the Camarilla and must respond to political decisions made by humanity in a way that, again, you could ignore in the old system. Where I'm, I would like it to be a game in which choosing to do something has a mechanical cost and a mechanical benefit, that there is a, a reason that uh, you might not uh, be a, a, a better vampire than other vampires than you would say, Oh, well, look at this. If I did that, it would harm me. Whereas I do this, it does not harm me. I, I would like to, to see that. And, and that's, again, that sort of vision of the creative director, Martin Erickson, that this is a game of personal and political horror. And we're trying to sort of blend those across the story. And you know my philosophy, uh, Robin, that if it is a game about something, there needs to be mechanics that reflect that thing. Otherwise, it's just, you know, so much color and, and players can and will ignore it. So in this case, they still can and will ignore it, but they will at least have to uh, write rules out as opposed to not write them in. So is there a, a default uh, starting city? I don't believe that there is a default starting city. Uh, we have got two books that will be coming out, I believe, at the same time as the Vampire Core book. And those are Anarchs and Camarilla. And those will have city treatments in them. But I don't think it's going to be like, bang, start with Chicago. I think it's going to be there's a number of cities that are presented in those setting books. And the way that they are presented may or may not make one of them sort of the natural beginning. But because it's a Swedish company, I think that they're going to try and focus a little more on Europe. Uh, Old Vampire was very North American. So at the very least, we're going to attempt to look at Europe and maybe at uh, the Kindred in other parts of the world. Uh, again, because White Wolf has sort of 
provided you vampires from Africa, the Laban, and um, uh, vampires from uh, China, the Kwaijin, we are not quite as able to just sort of retcon all those away as just misunderstood kindred. So it may still stick to what's broadly the Western world for the time being. But I think globalizing the approach of vampire, just like our politics have globalized since 1991, it's it's part of the design goal anyway. We'll see how close we get to it. Okay, let me see if I can uh, go through my uh, last of my mental list of things probably want to know. You already answered, I guess, just now. Will there be a line of support material? And the answer is obviously yes. Um, and I guess the other question people are going to hit you with immediately is, I want to play my werewolf in this v- game of vampire. Uh, how much will the other... Uh, streams of that uh, uh, setting uh, be foreshadowed in the first book? Um, Like I said at uh, Berlin, I am the guy they hired to do Vampire. I am going to do a game called Vampire about playing vampires. The werewolf game will be designed by its own people and have its own goals. There will be werewolves in Vampire, but I am going to try and present them as the foes vampires see them as not necessarily as playable characters. So it's not going to be like D&D 3rd, where you just take the stat block out and you can play it from the jump. I would prefer to see everything in Vampire looked at through the eyes of a vampire. And if you really want to play your werewolf, I'm sure that there will be methodologies blending the two systems uh, from the jump on the internet, if not anywhere else. And otherwise, you can wait a year or however long and Werewolf 5th Edition will come trundling down the pike any old minute. Well, for the next year, uh, as you dive into this, I'm sure you'll be coming across various uh, design concepts and situations, and you'll be typing them into our script so that we can talk about them in Gaming Hut. Perhaps I will. Hear allusions to them, just as you keep hearing allusions to the Yellow King role-playing game that I'm working on. And on that note, it is time to close Among Our Many Hats. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Chris Sating journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. It's time once again to reopen Among My Many Hats, because there are so many darn hats jammed up in here that if we don't open it up every now and again, they get moths. And a place you don't want to get moths, Robin, and I, and you, being as electronically savvy as myself, know this, 
is a web app. You can't have mods there. Am I right? Yes. Right. No mods. Uh, I do not wish to be a moth hat of any variety. No. So uh, what I thought we'd talk about uh, now is something connected to me, although this is one of the best projects connected to me in that a bunch of other people did all of the work and came up with something really awesome, which is the Story Beats web app. So those of you who know Hamlet's Hit Points, uh, those of you who will know uh, Beating the Story, my uh, equivalent book on just regular fiction writing that's uh, coming out sometime this year, uh, will be delighted to know that there's now a fast and easy and beautiful way to create your own uh, story maps using uh, the Story Beats web app. The chief uh, wrangler on this uh, was uh, Steve Hammond, uh, who is uh, not just a maker of uh, beautiful apps. He made the uh, Feng Shui 2 uh, app for uh, iOS and is a backer of this show. So he is. So uh, his stars are in his crown in heaven, is what you're trying to say. He has every sterling quality. Right. And so we want to also credit uh, other members of his team. So this app uh, was basically built uh, as part of a uh, programming contest called the Ruby Rampage Programming Contest. Cool name. And if I'm correctly informed, that means it's based on a programming language called Ruby on Rails. And don't ask me anything more than that <laughs> the technical side. <laughs> Ideally, don't even ask him that. Yeah, but there was like a 48-hour a programming challenge. So it's like the programming equivalent of, of NaNoWriMo, right? Right, or um, uh, the Ron Edwards Game Chef uh, contest. Uh, yes. And so uh, uh, Steve and Sterling collaborators, uh, Brian Multhoff, Nat Budin, and Nicole Brazio all jumped in to create this uh, super cool tool that allows you to take the uh, different icons that are used to express the building blocks of story in uh, the Hamlet's hit point scheme, and you can drag and drop them uh, using, at this point, uh, you want to stick to your desktop or laptop rather than a tablet. They're working on tablet functionality, and that'll be there soon, and I'm looking forward to that because uh, I will probably be, uh, if I'm doing something during a game session, I want to have access to it on the tablet. Um, but it was uh, done basically as a, a labor of love and to show uh, their general awesomeness. And they uh, got a fifth place out of 300 apps. So now, Robin, an app like that, an app of the sort you described, that must retail for upwards of $99. Am I correct? This, this is totally free. What? They did, this, they, they did this just out of the goodness of their hearts and as uh, and, and as show-offs of their fabulous skill. But in that case, it must be choked with ad content. It is not choked with ad content. There's no ads... Uh, nobody's going to uh, take your data, whether it's your personal data or... or your use data. Uh, nobody's going to take a record of the story that you're making. Because, of course, you may be outlining a novel or a screenplay or something. You, you need that to be confidential. Uh, so it's at storybeats.io, one of those fancy new uh, domains, the IO domain. That means that the servers are actually on a moon of Jupiter. I, I believe that's exactly technically yes. what it means. Powered I don't know by much volcanoes. About computers, but if you remember Hamlet's points... Uh, there are points where it sort of zooms out and shows you the overall line of your entire entire narrative, which is typically sort of a slow downward slope rather than the more uh, exaggerated up and down you may know from your high school uh, version of, of narrative mapping, which just measures the stakes rather than the emotional rhythm. And so at any time you can zoom out and see what it looks just as a whole line, and you can determine whether that's the line you want or whether you want it to to go up more at the end or down more at the end or, or, or what have you. So you can get that zoom out effect, uh, which you would normally, because uh, previously, if you wanted to make one of these maps, 
uh, you had to do so laboriously by hand using either uh, the icons and putting them in GIMP or Photoshop or campaign cartographer. Like a medieval monk. Like a medieval monk. And now you can just easily drag and drop whichever of the uh, icons you want, type in the uh, text underneath that describes the beat, and then also get your up arrow or down arrow um, or your uh, sometimes uh, you, you'll have a lateral arrow or a crossed arrow. Uh, and those are the ones that mark your emotional rhythm. And of course, the map will automatically place the next icon in, in the sequence, depending on where your uh, previous arrow was. So if you have a down beat and then you place your next beat, the arrow will lead down and you'll place it uh, in a downward position. And if there's been an upbeat, it'll be slightly higher than the previous uh, icon. So all of the annoying thing, uh, part of having to do this that I think made the exercise uh, aspirational rather actual for a lot of people is now out of the way. It's all automated and you can uh, super easily uh, do that. And of course you can save it, whether you're saving screen grabs or, or whatever else. And so you've got a visual version of your story, uh, no matter what point of the process you decide to make it. There you go. And you can, uh, once you can save it, you can obviously share it uh, with other people, with collaborators, perhaps. Yes, uh, you can make it public if you want, or uh, you can uh, keep it for your very own self. Fantastic. Well, that's storybeats.io, uh, computers fired by the volcanic power of Jupiter. It'll build your story beat map for your story of any sort, role-playing, legitimate stage, film, right. novels. And it's it's simple enough that if you're using it to map the emotional level of a role-playing game, if you've got a, a laptop uh, going rather than a tablet, uh, you can, during play, uh, it'll be simple enough to just do it on the fly. So you can see, uh, you can oh, you've follow... you've had four downbeats in a row, we need an upbeat. Yeah, exactly. I need to be uh, uh, less tough on the players here or... Or consequently, oh, they I've, here's a, here's all these easy victories. They've got time to bring the hammer down. So um, you can, if you want to note the story, it's actually a great note-taking device. You can uh, that can be your notes for the next time. You can just review the uh, the beats in order, and that can be probably a better uh, record of what happened in a very story-driven game than uh, your typical sort of list of NPCs or whatever it is that you, uh, that you take as notes. Cause so it can be a great memory jogger as well. And you can, uh, make that available to your players uh, to use as a resource between sessions. I am sensing a perhaps example of use in a future page XX, perhaps. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes. And of course that will be all of the details and information you would ever need to know about beating the story will be in your book, beating the story, which will be out when? Uh, sometime this year. Sometime this year from our, our good our friends. Our mutual at, pal, Will Heinmarch, is, is hard at work in the layout lines, even as we speak. Fantastic. And so the good people of Gameplay Right Press will be issuing it. And that's right. It will and be when that delightful. Comes out, there's a second set of new icons that determine, uh, or rather that mark transitions between scenes. And then those will be added to the, to the web app as well. Fantastic. Okay. I think that we have reached the upbeat end of our story perhaps. And so it is time to screen grab it, send it to everyone and move into our sponsored content and out into our next hut.
Ken, what happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like Brian Malcolm, Justin Cavern, Brendan Clowerty, Jake Mass, and Patrick Griffin. It's time once again to get our retinas scanned and uh, make sure that our security clearances are all up to date and there's nothing weird about us that would prevent us from working in an administration because it's time for the Trade Craft Hut. And can I, I know that our listeners like us to couch current events whenever possible in gaming terms. So I have a really cool, weird premise for a Knight's Black Agent's game. All right. I'm listening. Okay. So, so your agents, uh, not of the U S but of a, uh, another country, one that doesn't formally acknowledge in fact that it cooperates with the, uh, U S intelligence service. And you are, uh, heavily infiltrated into an enemy organization. And of course, like any night's black agents uh, scenario, you want to start with a boom. So everything blows up. Your, uh, the people you're infiltrating, uh, come for you, try to kill you, you narrowly escape, and once you're finally in safety, you turn on the news, and of course, you know, CNN is everywhere, and you see that the President of the United States, and he's doing this like the day after, uh, he has fired the head of the agency that is investigating the ties between, uh, his campaign and vampires. <laughs> and then he invites vampires, into the Oval Office. That's the only way they can come in. Yeah, and they they bring their own cameras. The uh, Western press with their regular cameras are not allowed in, but the vampire cameraman has the camera that allows vampires to be photographed. Uh, and so there are pictures of the vampires uh, yucking it up with the president. And then a few days later, it comes out that, in fact, it's the president who got you burned because... He just spontaneously, you know, just uh, having fun trying to impress his vampire pals, gave them not only intel, but enough intel that they could figure out who you were back in the uh, uh, in, in this uh, group that you're infiltrated in. And that's why you got burned. Does that seem realistic at all to you, Ken? Well, I mean, obviously the vampires are completely realistic, but it seems odd that the president would do that. I'm I'm going to have to call a, an audible on that while I go and look at the Washington. Oh my God! <laughs> so 
I, I thought this is going to be, as, as you will soon discover, folks, this is going to be a sort of a, a double, an ace double of a, a segment. We're going to segue somewhere else. But for the meantime, perhaps a bit of a backgrounder on some of the intelligence concepts involved in the story of the Trump intel spell. And so, Ken, could you start by explaining what code-worded intel is? Okay. Code-word intel is intelligence that is only available to someone who is cleared for that specific code word. So, for example, during uh, 1970, uh, we were secretly bombing Cambodia, and that was called Operation Menu. Now, Operation Menu was classified top secret, so you would think, well, gosh, anyone with top secret clearance can find out about Operation Menu. Not so fast. They also have to have code word menu clearance, right? So, only people who know menu or who are cleared for menu get to read the details of Operation Menu. And within the intelligence community, code word intelligence is very, very uh, highly segmented and very, very cut up into pieces because the code word has to protect the source from whom you got it and then also how the source got it, right? So if you have a, a intelligence source, let's say codename Warlock, you uh, from Tinker Taylor, Warlock might guard the identity of Warlock. And it also might guard who in Russia Warlock is talking to that gives him the intelligence. So having access to code worded intelligence within the intelligence community, not just within a defense operation like Menu was, is seen in very, very, very panicky, restricted, crazy people terms, uh, because so much can be derived from having that uh, code word information. Now, in fairness to the beloved president, the Washington Post does not say that he revealed sources and methods. It only says that he revealed product of code-worded intelligence. And obviously, for the Washington Post to know that, it is not like the Washington Post reporter knows that. It is because someone else who was at the meeting who had code-word intelligence classification, so they recognized the product of this operation, whatever it was, when President Trump shares it with the Russian ambassador and the task photographer who's standing right there, then goes to the Washington Post and says, President Trump just revealed code-worded intelligence. And the specific intelligence in this case was about ISIS operations in a given city somewhere in the Middle East. And the Washington Post knows what the city is, but they didn't tell us because they, the Washington Post may have had a, a brief moment of perhaps we should not also be helping as much. Right. <laughs> and and it, I believe it was conditional, of course, right. on, but ISIS does not control that many cities. But there, but there is certainly, but there is certainly the fact that the SVR and the GRU, uh, are not the, the sort of amiable napping bear, uh, Disney, uh, intelligence agencies. They are the very, very clever mean bear from the, that movie where they fight a bear. You know, where Anthony Hopkins fights a bear. It's awesome. Yeah. What is that called? The bear? It's probably called the bear. It, I believe it is called oh, the bear. Or is it called the edge? And, oh, yes. It's called the edge. The edge. You're right. Anyhow, it's it's a super smart bear is my larger point. So yeah. even hearing one end of that code word intelligence stream might very well allow SVR and GRU guys to begin sort of eliminating the impossible and what remains may indeed be plausible enough. Now, today... Uh, as I was looking at Twitter, the New York Times has revealed that the foreign country that provided this code-worded intelligence, because that's what makes it even crazier, is that it was a foreign country that provided the intelligence to us, and you're right. really not supposed to share stuff that comes from another country, because person. then they stop giving you intelligence, and without intelligence cooperation, it becomes much harder to know things. 
So the, the New York Times just revealed that the foreign country that uh, provided the intelligence was Israel. Now, I personally think that's wrong uh, for two reasons. One, everyone already knows Israel cooperates with us, so it's not as crazily sensitive as the Washington Post would have made it sound otherwise. Second, Israel's role in Middle Eastern intelligence, by and large, is to serve as the whipping boy for things that we really don't want people to know that we did with, say, the Jordanians or uh, the Turks or some other country where cooperating with them causes domestic fallout here and also can really get people executed over there. So if you've suborned, say, the Saudi intelligence chief, and he provides you intel, um, you can't reveal that it was the Saudis because they'll chop the guy's head off. So you say, oh, it was the Israelis, because even the Saudis believe that Mossad already knows everything. So they, they won't say, well, it's probably still our guy. We'll kill him. They'll say, well, what can you do? Mossad, devilishly clever. So the Israel story strikes me as a cover that is being launched desperately by the um, uh, intelligence community to try and limit the damage. Now, whether that's enough, because obviously the Soviets know the Soviets, goodness, the Russians know at least as much about Israel as I do. They may spend some time looking into, is it Israel? Or they may say, ha ha, fool us never and go looking for the Saudis or the Jordanians, whoever it actually is. And again, Mossad being Mossad, it is not unreasonable at all that Mossad also has assets in that given city. And so it would be a plausible chain and who knows, maybe it's even true. But, you know, like many things that appear in the New York Times with anonymous sourcing, it probably isn't. And if you're in that city, or in fact, any ISIS-controlled city, mm -hmm. and any member of ISIS thinks that you, a putative member of ISIS, are suddenly looking hinky, you're going to get killed now. Yes. Yes, you are. And not in a fun way. Yeah. It's not necessarily the case that they will identify the actual undercover agent and kill that agent. They might kill... 30, 40 people, and one of them might or might not be that agent. Yes, or it so might be an agent for a whole different country that is getting yes. the axe and not the uh, agent of the specific country in question. Or it might be the same guy selling the same in intelligence to five guys, which also happens. Yeah, and it's not going to be, you know, they may ask that question when they're torturing the person to death, mm -hmm. but the person will still end up tortured to death. Yes. The... No, there's, there, there is, there is no, um, uh, time off for good behavior with ISIS. And so you've already alluded to it, but also, uh, we're already hearing that even other intelligence agencies from uh, other nations, including my own, including even like the Five Eyes Alliance, are going, I don't know if, given what happened, uh, we didn't get burned this time, but can we trust uh, the current POTUS with any information whatsoever? What would the impact be on American security if allies start uh, withholding intelligence because uh, the president is a blabbermouth? Well, it's not good, obviously, because the Five Eyes program, as you allude, is pretty much the single greatest prop of American intelligence gathering. And that is the fact that we can use product completely equally from Canada, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. And under certain codicils, France, Norway, Singapore, and some other nations that are sort of junior members of Five Eyes. Without that stream of information, we are down to what we can domestically gather, right? not domestically in the sense of gather in America, but gather with our own agencies, with just the NSA, just the NRO, just the CIA. So that is less, obviously, than you get from all of the other countries helping you out. So at the very least, it's, you know, it's a heavy modifier, a heavy negative modifier to our ability to gather any given piece of intel. And since so much of what we do now 
just perforce is data mining of this intelligence, the less that sort of funnels into the big computers, the less you find when you sift out the nuggets, you, you wind up missing things that you might not otherwise get, even if in theory the NSA collected the same signals out of Pakistan as, say, India did. If you don't get India's feed, you're losing, you know, uh, telemetry, basically. And so you wind up uh, poorer for that as well. Right. And also with uh, human intelligence. Well, that, that that's just a whole different level, right? I mean, if the, you... The U.S. also sort of mostly outsources that, yeah. obviously, to people who can produce agents who will fit in in the countries that they want to target. Or countries whose national intelligence services have never deprecated human intelligence. Uh, the British, of course, are classically the, the... In the Western world, they're the guys who have really great human... Uh, the French to a probably similar extent. Um, and then, as you say, countries like Jordan, countries like India, countries like Israel that can produce agents who are uh, physically and culturally identical to the target populations that we want to go after. Um, the United States, in theory, could do that, but we have various weird classification rules and other kinds of rules that prevent us, for example, for going to uh, Iranian exiles in America and saying, hey, guys, who wants to go spy on Iran for us? For for one thing, those guys are penetrated by the Iranian intelligence service, but also we have a lot of very stringent rules against doing that because of the blowback from having used Cuban spies against Castro for so long. Uh, well, with that uh, groundwork laid, it's time to, uh, without a commercial, uh, shift suddenly into another segment. Perhaps, uh, Rob, uh, you could supply us with a uh, couple of, uh, just a brief couple of little notes that will usher us into a patriotic uh, fanfare or tum to or, uh, whatever it is that whatever you we have got. in the James Semple databank. And we are now going to enter our previously prefigured segment, Meet Senator Height. This is the segment in which we talk to the Kenneth Height from a nearby reality. In this reality, it is almost completely identical to the one that we know with the following exception, which is that Ken is the uh, senior senator from the great state of Oklahoma. Uh, he and James Lankford uh, both serve as senators from Oklahoma. Because if I'm going to go to all of the trouble of creating <laughs> an alternate reality, I'm going to get Jim Inhofe out of there. In Oklahoma Republican politics, Inhofe is the Tulsa uh, faction and Lankford is basically the Oklahoma City faction. So what that means is the Tulsa Republican Party in this alternate history has suffered a tremendous blow of some kind. And, uh, so Oklahoma City dominates on the national level. So haha, take that, Tulsa. Right. Jim Inhofe actually, uh, does work in the hobby game industry. <laughs> well, good. He makes foam cases for storing Napoleonic miniatures. Uh, and I had to kick him off an industry mailing list once. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, well, you know, Inhofe's got to Inhofe. All right. Um, so at any rate, uh, you, you're you up for election in 2020. Uh, you won in 2014. You got uh, 68% of the vote. Um, actually, that's what Inhofe got. So probably, you know, that's even conservative. I'm sure you would have gotten at least 70 because you have Sheila and you have that fun little byplay you have where she votes Democrat and mm -hmm. you joke on, on the, the talk shows yep. during your speeches about how she's trying to poison you and mm -hmm. all that cute stuff. So yep. you probably got at least 70, but let's say 68. It, 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 it goes over well with the meritocidal vote in Oklahoma, which is yeah. probably pretty high. Right. Uh, so you got 68. Uh, that's 2.7% uh, higher than Trump's uh, 2016 vote in Oklahoma. So uh, in this reality, uh, previously, we know that uh, both Kens were somewhat concerned that uh, Trump was destroying the conservative movement or the Republican Party as we know it. Uh, that's a little muddier now, actually, because it turns out that Trump 
does not remotely care what the content of any legislation is. <laughs> uh, and the uh, legislation that has uh, moved through the House at any rate is, uh, is uh, quite conservative and has had very little to do with his uh, populist uh, rhetoric. It turns out to just be talk alongside like talk like uh, uh, pre-existing conditions will be covered. So tell us, uh, on how do we want to do this? Am I interviewing Senator Hype, but he's being totally frank. This with is us. your segment. I have nothing to do with this segment. I have, I'm just representing the great state of Oklahoma. Okay. So I, I think our, our conceit here then is we're still talking to you, but you are aware of Senator Hype's thinking, uh-huh. as the newspaper phrase goes. Right. So I am a, a, point, a source closely placed uh, near Senator Hype. So we've got a lot of Republican senators at this point willing to say that they are troubled. Uh, if you're judging them by actual votes they cast, there's not a lot of difference between. Well, there's uh, there's there's not that much uh, in the terms of votes that say you know resolve the president shouldn't shoot his mouth off in front of the Russian ambassador. So yes. you can't really cast a vote on this specific issue. No, and in fact, there <laughs> are I think arguably things that senators other than you, Republican senators, are doing kind of behind the scenes. But the moment where the white of the eyes is seen and the the tipping point comes. So where is Senator Height on public statements about uh, expressing his uh, troubling concern for for Trump. What category does he fall into? Well, first of all, uh, Senator Height is very grateful to the New York Times for having mentioned Israel, because now Senator Height can blast President Trump for uh, endangering our noble Democratic ally in the Middle East and uh, running on in on a pro-Israel plank in Oklahoma is of money in the bank. It is super, super easy and super, super popular. So by casting it that way, it draws any fangs that Senator Height might uh, otherwise uh, feel he was going to suffer from criticizing President Trump for babbling like a, a Tourette's victim in front of the Russian ambassador. And he can couch it as damaging our relationship with the great state of Israel. And so that is a, um, uh, that is a, a mitzvah and a blessing provided by the New York times. Right. So that implies then that at this point, Senator Haidt is still in the, I have to be careful about how I distance myself from Trump while distancing myself from Trump stage. Exactly. So you're kind yeah. of in the, Lindsey Graham, McCain, Ben Sass sort of, uh, more uh, Ben Sass than Lindsey Graham, but in that, in that uh, box. Yes. It is certainly a matter of, of law and of fact that the president can declassify anything the president wants to, uh, as formally as officially declassifying it or as informally as opening his big yap in front of the Russian ambassador. Uh, so you, it is not an impeachable offense. It is not a criminal offense. It is uh, what would be illegal for any other member of the executive branch. Uh, is not illegal in this case when the president does it. And that's not a question of the president being above the law. It's a question of the president literally being the originator of all executive action in the government. And this would be an executive action of some sort. Right. And of course, but, a, but as an esteemed senator, of course, you, you're not only have to be concerned about criminality, mm-hmm. but about fitness and judgment. And, and this does, and, and this does raise serious questions. I'm pretty sure Senator Height would say about, um, uh, <laughs> would, would you say Senator Height is troubled? I would say he's troubled. I would say he's troubled. I, I would say he feels that it raises serious questions. And, uh, uh, Senator Height is, is worried about its, uh, impact on all of our allies, including, of course, uh, the government of Israel who uh, are going to have to host president Trump on his 
upcoming foreign visit, and that will surely not produce any other <laughs> public relations disasters. Why yeah, should because it? Because once they're even more exhausted than they already ha- are and have jet lag, people but generally for the think, listeners of the show think that better. will have already happened. Yes. So. yes. Now, uh, of course, this is just but but one jewel in a vast tapestry. Uh, including the uh, firing of the FBI director. Was Senator Haidt uh, publicly troubled by that as well? Uh, Senator Haidt is still calling for a, uh, a congressional investigation into irregularities in the 2016 election. But Senator Haidt is probably sticking to the theory that it is it's the president's prerogative to fire the FBI director just as it was when President Clinton fired uh, director Sessions in 1993. Right. Uh, that is not again uh, that is that is legally acceptable I guess I'm, and it would probably even be very difficult to prove that it, uh, it being obstruction of justice. It would be impossible to prove it given that there is no investigation of President Trump currently underway by the FBI. Right. Uh, the investigation is under is into Russian activities, not into President Trump. Uh, and what requirements are you going to have of a new FBI director before you vote to confirm? I think Senator Haidt would uh, would require that someone with a background in law enforcement be considered. I think that would be the minimal that you could request. So you're not behind your fellow. Are you behind your fellow Senator John Cornyn? I don't believe that uh, uh, my good friend. John Cornyn has the necessary professional background, although obviously I have every confidence in his judgment and his probity. Now, uh, what is the tripwire for Senator Haidt uh, when he would be ready to uh, start saying the I word? What would have to, um, is he, uh, is he waiting for something to happen? Is he assuming nothing will happen and he won't have to face this question? And, and if, uh, if it's a, what is he? I mean, obviously, the- obviously Senator Haidt can't comment on events that haven't happened, but the standard for the I word is the same as the standard for the I word evidence of criminal activity. And so far there isn't any, so far there's not even any evidence of meaningful collusion. Although Ken Haidt, the game designer is, is merely waiting for someone to start, um, uh, going through the books of the Russian mafia, but. Senator Height, of course, has no knowledge of that effect whatsoever. Because money laundering and New York real estate oh, go hand in hand in hand. Other. Yeah. And is uh, Senator Height uh, concerned at all on fitness grounds? Is there any just grounds of general fitness at which you will... Senator uh, Height um, uh, uh, eventually endorsed his fellow Senator Cruz for the presidency and never formally endorsed uh, Donald Trump for reasons similar to those you bring up in that question. Right. Uh, but are there any... Is there any action... That Senator Height will take in the future under uh, different conditions, or is he just going to hunker down and hope that this too shall pass? Anything is anything is possible given future conditions, but again, Senator Height cannot comment on things that have not yet happened and or hypotheticals. <laughs> well, I, I think Senator Height is starting to sound like actual Senator Height and not the uh, person speaking with full knowledge of his uh, thinking. So I guess at that point, that's our on cue. background. Obviously, Senator Height will do the right thing at any given time. Right. Well, uh, maybe we'll check back in with Senator Haidt a little later if uh, other events come into play, and we'll see if he's uh, ready to move. Because I, I have a feeling that, like uh, McCain and Sass, they have, I think they probably have like a mental bench- benchmark of, might be a poll number, might be uh, a particular revelation, but... Uh, I suspect that at least uh, Sass has a benchmark. I don't know about McCain or Graham. I, I think in McCain's uh, head, there's something about whites of eyes, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe that's how he's thinking of it. Hard to say. Uh, But at any rate, uh, we're already exiting this segment, so let's actually exit it.
skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time once more to visit with the consulting occultist, but this time, instead of heading up his creaky cobweb stairs, we are headed to a diner uh, just outside the Berlin airport, uh, which is shaped like, well, it's not shaped like, it's actually a train car, and there we're going to gorge on currywurst, and then after we do that, we're going to head with the consulting occultist to the Culture Forum in Berlin, where there is currently an exhibit about alchemy, and this is not uh, just, I gather, a a bunch of Alembics and, and Athenors and stuff. But it has actually, actually got no Alembics or Athenors in it. It is a, a wide-ranging exhibit about art and alchemy. So, uh, uh, Ken, can you paint us a beautiful word picture? I will paint you a beautiful word picture. That's the kind of thing I'm going to do. The Culture Forum is a collection of museums that were built in the, mostly I think in the 60s and 70s, when it was discovered that the Division of Berlin had moved all of the museums into the east. And so Berlin didn't have any museums, so it started building new ones. Among them, the Kunstgewerbe Museum, which is a big uh, art museum, is sort of jambled up behind St. Matthias Church and with uh, the Art History Library near it. It's across the street from the Library of uh, the City of Berlin. It's got all manner of, uh, of neat surroundings, and it itself is a big, hideous uh, piece of modernist architecture. But inside is a number of different uh, museum galleries, and you buy a ticket for the individual gallery, and then you go and you uh, get to gaze at it. And in this case, I went to uh, the Alchemy, uh, die Grosser Kunst, or the Great Art uh, Exhibit, um, it's two, uh, sort of large galleries on two separate floors. Uh, the, the exhibit is done in partnership with the Getty in, uh, LA. So it has a number of alchemical texts that, uh, are opened to reveal their exciting, uh, title pages or their various characteristic engravings. It's got some reproductions of alchemical art. going to the Getty or? I don't, I did not see any sign that it was going to go to the Getty, but, um, it's got a, Los Angeles curator listed, so I assume that it will eventually wind up at the Getty. I would hope so. Um, but it also has some stuff from other German museums. Uh, there are statues of uh, Mercury, statues of Hermes, uh, various pieces of Egyptian art and artifacts that they, I guess, borrowed from the Pergamon. So I'm not sure how much of it would wind up going to the Getty or not. But this is about, it's about 200 artworks, and it goes from very, very early Egyptian material that is colored with Egyptian blue, which is the first artificial pigment uh, ever uh, created uh, back in about 1300 or so BC, and then forward to very modernist works of, in in some cases, in installation uh, that illustrate 
alchemical concept uh, concepts, either in the mind of the curator of this exhibit or occasionally in the mind of the actual artist. And so it attempts to tie alchemy, not just into the specific uh, making gold out of lead, but also because it's Germans, they've got this Jungian notion that it has a spiritual component. And so it is art of this uh, alchemical spirit um, and art illustrating these uh, spiritual concepts, as well as notions that um, because of alchemy's overlap with industrial chemistry, arts such as photography are fundamentally alchemical arts because you are drawing images out of uh, salts and metals and specially coated papers. And sure enough, there you have produced art from it, produced an image, and that is an alchemical process. And so they look at things like cyanotyping, which is taking pictures using Prussian blue and one expects horribly, horribly poisonous things. Um, and it was invented by William Herschel and his daughter, uh, apparently spread out a piece of lace and cyanotyped it. And so we had that. It involves the creation of porcelain, which was done by alchemists, although porcelain itself is not specifically alchemical, except that porcelain has, as it transpires, an awful lot in common with various Chinese decorative arts, which go back to attempting to investigate the uses of mercury for building the elixir of life. So maybe right. it is. Because, so of course, the distinction we now draw between chemistry and alchemy was not a distinction until very recently. Right. Uh, and so there's people like uh, the photographer Heinz Hajek Halka. He's got stuff there. Eve Klein, uh, Jeff Koons. There was a Jeff Koons in the, in the piece and a number of, of artists down to people who are younger than me with things exhibited there. Uh, there was a, a visual uh, art uh, projected on a beaten gold disc that was based on Kepler's Somnium. And uh, when you uh, projected the art onto the disc, it was sort of a, a sort of a moving picture like feeling, but the the scratches and the images that are on the disc would show up in the imagery as the imagery was projected and, and changed and moved about the disc. So that was sort of a another approach of combining imagery and gold to create um, art. They had a picture, although not the original, of the Canadian like million Canadian dollar million loony gold piece or whatever it was that you guys made. They had a picture of that um, uh, talking about how. Uh, the the notion of uh, ascribing value to gold is itself an alchemical uh, process. So, Canada also present. So, which Kuhn's piece was it? It was his Venus, which is uh, a sculpture that is made out of reflective, uh, I guess, metal or something, some sort of surface. But it's sort of a Venus of Willendorf looking thing with a bunch of spheres and blobs uh, sticking out of it. And it has a coating that is apparently very similar to... Uh, a mercury and gold coating that was used to create artificial rubies by an alchemist named Kunkel who practiced in Berlin. And so it is sitting next to the artificial rubies and the ruby glass made by this guy Kunkel. Right. So Kunz is not someone who you would normally think of as uh, a modern artist who you would pick to represent alchemy. Uh, you know, you might think of Gerhard Richter or something, but obviously uh, you know, there are enough connecting dots there between the, the Venus of Willendorf figure, and so that's your mythic bit, and then you've got your metallurgical bit, and you might have the idea that these pieces of art are just modern art until they get into an alchemy museum, and then afterwards, uh, the, that association itself changes them, and so they could then become uh, significant uh, in uh, your game, and that could be sort of a fun uh, twist in that the uh, the artifact MacGuffin that you're running around trying to get is uh, no longer uh, something that uh, reeks of antiquity, but is super sleek 
and uh, modern. So I take it you would definitely recommend uh, this show to anyone who happens to be in uh, Berlin. Oh, yeah. And anyone who's in Berlin um, uh, until uh, July 23rd, which is when it stops being in Berlin, uh, should go to it. It is it is very cool. Uh, it's pretty dirt cheap to get into. It was like 10 euro. And um, uh, you get a you can you can buy the lovely card catalog. Um, and if you read German, then you can read the, the lovely card catalog. Uh, it has all manner of uh, really interesting sort of uh, uh, observations like the one that you just made about how uh, things that are not seen as alchemical, but when put next to other alchemical things, obviously uh, take part in alchemical um, uh, meaning. There was, for example, a very fun set of tables of the elements that begins with an alchemical uh, table of the elements from, I want to say, Agrippa, and then goes into the Diderot entry on the elements in the encyclopedia and then into a proper uh, 1950s straight up Helvetica table of the elements and the parallels and the, and the crossovers. It, it's, it's just a very playful, I want to say certainly ludophilic uh, exhibit. And so if you go in with sort of an open mind and first of all, who doesn't love the idea of a ger of a German al alchemist building artificial rubies on an Island in Berlin. I think everyone likes that, but, to then see the ruby glass grail sort of thing that was made for one of the Fredericks uh, that's standing right next to it. And then over into Jeff Koons's Venus, that should set your mind down some very un uh, uh, unaccustomed trails. And uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in it. Now I've already talked about my trip to uh, Berlin, but just briefly, what were your impressions of the city? Uh, well, I went in May, which I think is the month to go see anything in Europe. It was beautiful. The weather was great, except for one uh, rainstorm, which I was indoors for. Obviously, it's one of the great cities of Europe. I found it super easy to get around in and uh, navigate. I was pretty much uh, put to my own devices because my fellow uh, vampire people were engaged in LARPing and other things that I didn't have to do. So I scampered off and, and had my own fun. Uh, I met uh, our, our Chaosian buddy, Jeff Richard, and he... Uh, showed me a lovely architectural bookshop that I wouldn't have known existed. So I got one or two things there. It's a really vibrant, exciting city with a lot of stuff going on. And I, I know that I just sort of passed a red hot needle through it and barely even touched everything that there was uh, going on. But I, I had a great time. Did you go past Checkpoint Charlie? I did not go through Checkpoint Charlie, but I, I spent some time in the east as well. Uh, so you got to saw, see some uh, plastered in bullet holes. Yes, I did. I got to see some uh, really hideous uh, architecture and not just the hideous modern architecture, but hideous Soviet architecture. And of course, I did go, uh, speaking of the of the sort of terroir of the place, I did go to the old Gestapo headquarters, which has been knocked down. Uh, but some of the walls of the basement are still standing, and they have an outdoor museum exhibit in front of those walls. And this one was about Berlin uh, under the Third Reich. And I looked at that, and then there is a uh, sort of a glass and steel box on the site of the old Prince Albrechtstrasse Gestapo headquarters that you go into and you can look at a bigger museum about how the Gestapo was very mean. Um, it didn't provide an awful lot of in-depth information, uh, but maybe it, that's not its job. It's sort of the, Hey guys, uh, for those of you who don't know why, uh, Germany's not allowed to have nice things. This is why. And was it the spy museum itself that you thought was underwhelming or just its bookstore? Just its bookstore. The spy museum itself is obviously it's a, it's a tourist centered museum, not a, uh, you know, scholarly centered museum, but what it had in it was, was really strong. And it had an interactive map of Berlin where you would click on a, one of the little flags and it would 
tell you what happened at that spot in Berlin. I could probably have stood there for four and a half hours clicking every little flag. And one of my great disappointments with the bookshop is they didn't have a book that was just the stuff you could have gotten out of that interactive exhibit because I would have happily paid 30 euro to not have to stand there for four hours clicking. Uh, and finally, did you have uh, any exciting food experiences while there? I, I, I had schnitzel thrice. Uh, so you you answer that question for yourself. Because um, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the first one and the second one weren't quite on. No, they, they, they were not quite on. Um, but uh, the third schnitzel, that was the one. Um, yeah, I had uh, schnitzel thrice. I did have currywurst, which I recommend to anyone who is drunk. It was not a full-on culinary experience, but I'm sure that if I went back with that as my goal, I could uh, I could have all manner of good time. But at the moment, it was a lot of it was just catch as catch can and grab a donor uh, where I'm standing. I did. Uh, when it, I went to the Pergamon on Sunday, the cab dropped me off across the river from the Pergamon because they didn't want to drive over the bridge. Um, but across the river from the Pergamon, there was a open air book fair, which I went uh, through. And at the open air book fair, there was a place that was selling currywurst, but it was also selling Turinger bratwurst. And I got one of those on a, uh, on a soft, on a soft roll with mustard that was hanging down like a cow's udder that you squoze to get the mustard on your uh, Thuringer. And that was phenomenal. That, that, that Thuringer may have been the best thing I ate in Germany. And I felt like going back and ordering, you know, two more or one more and fries. And I thought I've already been plenty American on this trip. Maybe I'm just going to enjoy my one Thuringer and, and go to the Pergamon, which was a wise choice because there was a big line to get into the Pergamon and I probably shouldn't have dawdled over a second uh, bratwurst. So will your vampire gig also get you a trip to Sweden that you can uh, talk about? I have had a trip to Sweden already for the vampire gig, and I assume that there will be another secret. one. It was top secret at the time. But at in that trip, I went to see the Vaza, and perhaps we could talk about the Vaza in another segment of this very podcast. Well, since we're talking about this very podcast, I guess it's time to wrap up this particular episode of this very podcast, and we'll rejoin you all next week, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Cross your arms and go invisible alongside such patrons as... Rob Abrazado. Robert King. Yuri Horneman. Martin Runkfist. And Samuel Hawley. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.